0: Hello, hello, my let's keep it real people. Man, oh man, are you in for a real treat. My next guest just blew me away. I know I say that a lot, but he really did. I could have just talked to him for hours and hours and hours. So I do want to read a little more about him because it is crazy, Robbie's journey. I mean, it just blew me away. I'm, I'm sitting here like speechless, but I'm going to get it out. Ravi's journey as a rock star, aviator, cultural diplomat for the U.S. Department of State, and keynote speaker as an inspiring example of how to pivot and succeed in ever-changing world. He is the first American-born descendant of India's first family. But his worldwide visibility skyrocketed in 1997 as the guitarist for triple Grammy nominee Hanson, performing at the White House, Madison Square Garden, Saturday Night Live, Today Show, and more. Ravi later became a pilot and aviation speaker, helping the industry attract new student pilots. And in 2015, the U.S. Department of State began sponsoring his cultural programs in Russia, Indonesia, Iraq, and Lebanon. A highly respected keynote speaker in education leadership, Ravi is also the founder of Ravi Unite Schools a large network of international K through 12 schools whose classrooms participate in a peer-to-peer real-time audio-video interactions and author of Pivot Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow oh oh Oh, enjoy. Have fun. I know you're going to want to share this with the world. Rate it, like it, and you know how much I appreciate that. And again, thank you so much for just recommending me for my keynotes and my corporate clients. I am truly, truly blown away. Have fun. Toodles.
1: This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life. And as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit.
0: All right, people, you asked for it to see more of the peeps on Let's Keep It Real. So here's Robbie. I've been telling you about him all week long, and he is here to help parents, teachers, kids, no matter where you are, learn how to pivot in such, well, different times, weird times, wacky times, new times. Hi, Robbie. How are you?
1: Great, Sandy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: And I'm very excited. I, don't, I think you're my first guest that's in Chile. So,
1: so I, I own I, that. <laughs> Part of the world, as far as uh, your show is concerned, I'll take yeah, it. You own
0: it, but we <laughs> get into it because I have a lot of questions. I've never been there. Give me one word that best describes your past thirty days. How? It, what would that word be for you? You can pick any word you want.
1: Summertime. Summertime. <laughs> I thought you were going to go. Coming ahead. from the Northeast, that's the that's the greatest thing about being in the opposite hemisphere. You know, in these quote unquote winter months, right? We all think the winter months, yeah, know, December, January. It's it's summer break right now. Everybody's on summer vacation. So that feel coming from the cold and going into summertime. Well, you know, I mean, I grew up in in New England, in the suburbs of New York City, and. Uh, yeah. You know, if if I never have to shovel snow again in my life, I won't be disappointed. Let's put it that way. Really? So uh, yeah, and, and even the idea, you know, it's it's funny because you know, even the idea of Christmas on the beach, you know, is such a weird concept. But it's funny down here because kids down here are always wondering, why is Santa Claus dressed in all these warm clothes?
0: Oh yeah, that's <laughs> a good. Summertime. Point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never thought of that. Like right. But do you say, well, he came from the North Pole and he just didn't change? <laughs> I don't know. How do you Yeah, I with- don't
1: know. It's, 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 uh, but those are the kinds of things that you don't think of. And it's kind of funny, you know, when we, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what I do in education. But that's part of it is that, you know, as adults, we don't think of those really important questions sometimes yeah. that kids come up with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, gee, I never thought of that. I guess it doesn't. The whole thing doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah.
0: So. I know you said you're there for a few more weeks, right? Do you keep going back and forth? Like, what's your schedule? I do. Yeah,
1: I live here part-time. And so I I come back and forth almost every month. I mean, it depends on when I have a keynote speech. So for example, I've got a keynote at the beginning of March in Dallas, and then a few days later in New Orleans, and I'll go back to my home in Virginia for a little while, and then I'll come back down here. So, you know, sort of schedule driven. I was in um, just went up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin a few weeks ago. Uh, to give the keynote for the Wisconsin State Education Convention. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> that was a culture shock because I was literally, you know, I flew up there and I was in the hotel, and but I still had to go outside to get from the hotel to the van to yeah, get back yeah. to the airport. And it was like six o'clock in the morning. I kid you not, I got frostbite on my ear from that Sh- uh, 45 <laughs> second trip from the hotel into the van it was they according to to my driver it was 25 degrees below zero with the wind chill that morning mm. Mm. <laughs>
0: but,
1: where were your earmuffs where were your earmuffs <laughs> uh, well that's my point i was sitting down here in chile that you know the week before and the week after i didn't think about earmuffs. oh my god <laughs> it wasn't even on my radar that's true all right so
0: we have a lot of questions for you from parents and a few mm-hmm. from teachers but I want to dive right into the rock and roll career. I mean, I was checking you out, man. I mean, you've had a well-rounded journey. I mean, think about it, pilot, rock star, (laughs) now keynote speaker. So what was it like being up there on stage in front of all those people jamming out? Oof.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing experience. And, you know, as a, as a kid, my dream was to be Angus Young of ACDC, you know, so for my 11th birthday, my mom bought me an electric guitar. And I was growing up in the suburbs of New York City. So in my mind, I was playing Madison Square Garden, but I was still on the deck, you know, out in the backyard. Yeah. But I knew by the time I was 14, that this is what I wanted to do. And I was very focused. Wow on having that type of a career. And, you know, I spent a lot of time doing studio work in my late teens and, and had a recording studio in my mom's basement before I graduated high school, which I had clients and students, and it was kind of cool. And, and it, that's what ultimately happened is one of those clients moved on, uh, became uh, an important guy at Mercury Records. And he thought of me at the time when somebody said, hey, you know, the young guitar player that would try to launch. And he thought of me. And he, actually, the story's—you know—it's a good—it's a good lesson for all of us, but especially for kids. Um, I had lost touch with him, so I sent him a Christmas card that year in December, just to reach out and, and say, you know, see how he was doing. And it was in February, two months later, that somebody mm. said, "Hey, is you know, a young guitar player? Well, who's on the top of his mind? The guy that just sent him a Christmas card." So I got the gig without uh, an audition to join this band that nobody had ever heard of. Uh, but Mercury Records was putting all the money behind it. And three m- months later, after that one gig, three months, I think two, three months later, we were on David Letterman show. And that was the big break for the release of the song Umbap. So some of your audience now may know what band I'm talking about. Uh, Umbap was number one on the charts by the end of May of 1997, and we were outselling every other band in the world by August of 1997. So it was amazing to be the guitar player of Hanson. Uh, Hanson <laughs> yes. was um, you know, a, a, an amazing experience, and we got to play Madison Square Garden. So I got to live that dream that I had when I was that 11-year-old in the backyard pretending I was in Madison Square Got to live that when I was 25, and it was absolutely incredible. We did the show with Aerosmith, that was incredible. And Liv um, and uh, Tyler, Stephen Tyler's daughter was a huge fan of the band. So it was yeah. kind of funny, because Aerosmith was hanging out in our, they were all hanging out in our dressing room. You would think yeah. it would be the other way. So yeah. it was just a very surreal sort of experience. You know? uh, yeah, Something I had dreamed of, but it all you surpassed my dream from, you know, doing Letterman and Leno and Today Show, and then Madison Square Garden. And then we ended the year playing Bill Clinton's Christmas party at the White House. So it was, you know, just your normal year, you know,
0: (laughs) just a kid having a life, you know, ups and downs.
1: Yeah. But it was a whirlwind, you know, and it was, for me, it was a not just a live your dream experience, but it was a a real opportunity to learn about the industry that I really wanted to be part of. Uh, At that time, I thought I'd have a long career in the music. Yeah.
0: All right. So I have, I have so many questions. First of all, When I was in high school, I dated a guitarist for five years. And all we did is go to every major concert. I swear I was going to be deaf, but I'm not. (laughs) And I always wondered what it was like. You could see him up on stage, but I'm sure there's a lot of stuff going on behind the stage. It's not always, you know, fun and excitement out there. And I remember that (laughs) I was at a Led Zeppelin concert, believe it or not. And I was thinking to myself, Oh, my God, I I have no musical talent, but I want to perform. Maybe I could speak or do something. So you went from rock star to keynote speaking but how did you make that ship because it's the same thing you're still up on stage in front of thousands of people
1: <clears throat> well exactly you know and, and you're right there's so much in the in the rock and roll part there's so much that goes on behind the scenes I mean there's a huge crew there's sound checks there's vans there's buses there's press there's all this stuff and it's night after night after night mm. in a new place and I'm not complaining I mean it was a gr- it was a great experience but all of a sudden everything starts to become the same and I used, to, I used to tell people, you know, it's funny. You wake up in the morning and you don't know where you are. So you start looking for the welcome book in the hotel to see what city you're in. Uh, but yeah. the dangerous part is when you don't even care and you stop looking for the welcome book. And Mm. that's when you start to really just become disconnected and not grounded with with life in general. So what I love about the keynote speaking is that I'm still on stage, but I'm hanging out with my audience 10 minutes before I go on stage. And I'm hanging out with my audience 10 minutes after I'm off stage. And I'm hanging out at the bar with my audience that night. And I'm getting to know people, I'm getting to learn from them. And it's not and building relationships. Mm. So it's not just what the music industry was, which was just go, go, go. And, and a you know, huge amount of coordination. I'm now one guy running my own schedule yeah. and still on stage, but having a very different relationship with the audience that I, that I really like because I'm growing from it yeah. myself every time. Okay. They want
0: to know why. I got lots of questions. Why and when did you make the shift from Rockstar to Keynote?
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't a quick shift. I mean, in um, 1990, 1997 was when I was with Hanson. And, you know, about two years later, we got into Y2K and the, everything shifted, right? Because the internet was discovered and Napster was discovered, which uh, ended up sort of destroying the music industry in many ways. The record companies had no idea how to monetize this new P2P sharing economy. So I, as fast as I saw my music industry career grow, I saw it collapse. Mm. And uh, over the course of the next two years, next uh, eight years almost, I was trying to rebuild it. And I was writing for magazines about my experience with Hanson and what it was like, and how to be an entrepreneur in this new music industry, in this internet-based uh, peer-to-peer sharing industry. And that's when I started speaking. Colleges started asking me if I would come and speak ah. to their students about the new artist entrepreneur and what does it take. So because I had the the benefit of having this background of the big machine of the music industry, Mm. went through the collapse and then had to try to figure it out. So I was uh, every year for many years, I would speak up at Berklee College of Music in Boston, as well as Pepperdine and many other music schools uh, around the country, music conferences, um, the National Association of Music Merchandisers. I mean, I was really I was Learning to speak on stage because people were hopefully interested uh, in you know, <laughs> yeah. my experiences and what I had to say. I'm sure they because were. People that hired me felt that that the audiences would be interested. Yeah. So you know, between writing for the magazines and, and starting my speaking career, that was going really well until 2008. We had the global uh, financial crisis, and a lot of my sponsors and a lot of the the uh, opportunities that I had collapsed again. So I had to pivot once again. And that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to pursue my other childhood dream, which was I'm going to learn to fly an airplane. So when I got into aviation, uh, I learned to fly an airplane that year. And I just thought that the class that the cockpit of an airplane was the greatest classroom I'd ever been in. And the aviation industry was struggling to recruit new pilots. So I said, well, I've got an angle here. I want to talk about how the growth opportunity. And so I had some speaking experience now from from that Mm -hmm. time in the the post-internet music industry. So I transitioned that into an aviation speaking career. And I was speaking at aviation events and speaking at middle schools and high schools about pursuing your dreams and, you know, um, experiential learning and and how that uh, all happens in the cockpit of an airplane. And that's really where I I think I honed my speaking skills because the audiences were bigger. Mm. They were of a different generation. There were some that were older. There were some that were younger. And I really had to learn to communicate effectively with people from different cultures and different generations. And So that's when in 2015, I developed an inner ear infection that wiped out my vestibular system. I lost my balance on the the right side. I could no longer land airplanes safely. So I decided, well, it's time to leave the aviation industry. But I've now really figured out the speaking piece of it. I'm going to just rebrand as a keynote speaker. And that's all I'm going to do are keynote speeches. And the first industry to take interest in what I had to say was the education industry. Mm. And I think that's because I had these ideas, like the cockpit of an airplane was the greatest classroom I'd ever been. I was referring to Hansen as the Harvard Business School of Rock and Roll. For me, all of these experiences were a learning journey. And that's what I realized that education needed is to understand that that education is a lifelong journey. We have to become lifelong learners. And it isn't just about getting into college. It isn't just about getting a master's. Mm. It isn't just about getting a PhD and then hopefully landing a job, which many people at that time found that you put in all those years. And then post 2008, there were no jobs. We had an economic collapse. And the millennial generation were the ones that experienced this and felt that they had been cheated. Um, yes, so big I time. It was big time. Yeah, and and so when we talk about why the millennials have the sense of entitlement, that's part of it. You know, they were sold something, and that wasn't delivered, hmm. and so that's why I thought education was a great place for me to be because education has to pivot and has to evolve, and so now ninety uh, percent of my work is is keynotes for medium to large education leadership conferences.
0: Yes, yeah, so <laughs> uh, I talk to my students. Uh, a lot of them are at this coffee house I go to and I get Mm -hmm. to hear a lot of their concerns, right? A lot of times they blame us. They go, you screwed us. (laughs) Look (laughs) at the country you left. I'm like, oh, wait, I don't think I did it all myself, but okay, let's just go with that. And I told them you were coming on and their biggest thing is they feel, especially in high school and college, that the teachers aren't hearing them, that they go in and okay, the biggest thing is we got to make sure this curriculum is met and here's this, and you got this for marketing or you got this for science. You got this for English and math and it's tunnel vision, like check, 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 but they're very concerned about life and their mental health. They really are. And I've never seen, and it makes me so sad, but I try to help as much as I could. They're filled with overwhelmment and anxiety Mm. and stress, but the schools aren't catching up with them. They feel. to address this. They're like, "Well, we're trying to fit it in. And they said, tell Robbie he has to change As I go, okay, I'll ask him what he's doing. I'm on it. I'm on it. They're like, come on, Sandy, you know?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's, the the bottom line is education. You know, I write, I talk about it in my new book, Pivot, Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow, which I wrote here in Chile during the first wave of the pandemic, during lockdown. I know. Love it. And, you know, it was, uh, well, I had nothing else to do. All my engagements were canceled. So I figured, okay, this is time to write that book that's been on my mind for a long time. And, um, you know, that's the the crux of it is that education really has to be relevant and education has to pivot. It has to evolve with the needs. We we are not just building uh, factory workers anymore. We are training entrepreneurs and, and leaders. And so education really has to, recognize that this is a huge opportunity, that maybe our old ways of standardized testing and, and, and you know, curriculums of yesterday are just not correct anymore in order to prepare students for that unpredictable future. I, I mean, I think the educators themselves and the education industry as a whole actually does a great job. We really have a much better industry, education industry and public school uh, network than we're given credit for. But it doesn't change the fact that, like everything in life today, mm-hmm. it's politicized, and there's a lot of uh, controversy over it. And public school is a huge part of every, you know, political campaign, mm-hmm. and and it has been, yeah, you know, for for. For decades. And so it's very complicated. The student sometimes gets lost in all of this when the Mm -hmm. student is the center of all of this and needs to be at the center of all of this. So I hear those students that are are concerned and and, and they're right to be concerned. But I also hear those teachers who are saying, Well, wait a second, we're not their parents. You know, their parents have a role in this too. And we can't Ah. cover everything. We can't, you know, we're we're trying to give them the foundation and the basics, but if you're also Cutting our budgets, we're running the teacher shortages. But you want us to provide the social emotional, you want us to provide the psychological counseling, you want us to provide meals, you want us to do all that. We're doing our best here, but we're we're up against a lot. And I think that's that's sort of the conflict in, in some ways in what we're hearing now in in school board meetings, you know, which are mm. uh, are the the hot topics are critical race theory and vaccine mandates and mask mandates. But there's an underlying distrust and misunderstanding of the role of school in education, and in my mm-hmm. opinion, the role of parents in education. Family yeah. and parents are the first educators of a child. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I say in the book is that uh, education is more than going to school. It has to be a collaboration of be- between teachers and parents, mm-hmm. not an active collaboration, but everyone needs to know their role. Yeah. And, yeah. Every, and if point. everyone knows their role, then we can educate the whole child and lead them to be successful in an unpredictable future.
0: Okay, there's so much to unpack here, but let's start with the number one thing, which my teachers, I have a lot of friends that are teachers, and I hear this all day long. We want to change the curriculum we don't agree. They'll go in and go, Oh my God, it's standardized testing. Why are we doing this stuff? I'd rather be doing this other stuff with the kids, but they said, Sandy, it it takes too long. I mean, we we don't know how to change it. You know, they want to do it to teachers, but like you said, the book political it's it's a whole nother realm. So (laughs) I work more with the kids, but they're like, you got to help us. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask Robbie that too. Like, I don't know what to tell them to do because they feel like they're stuck. And I really do. My heart goes out for the teachers. I think they're doing, in my area, a bang up job.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And so one of the things that that uh, is filling my schedule now are school convocations where a school district will hire me to come in and speak to the teachers and the staff at the beginning of the school year to fire them up uh, because they need it and they deserve it. Uh, you know, they do work very hard and they are up against a lot of things, but the reality is, uh, and and this is so true for my own story. I mean, my career and and success, however you define success, at least how I define my own success Mm. is I can, I can trace it right back to a few teachers that I had in school. And they just made the complete difference in my trajectory, not just in school, mentors that I had outside of school, too. And um, that's the other thing that, that uh, I often think about is how rigorous should school be? Because if we don't give kids time to find outside mentors and have those opportunities as well, because that's part of education, it needs to, mm. you have to have a combination of real world education and school education, it's all important. And it all has to coexist. So I try to fire up teachers by telling by reminding them what a difference they really do make, reminding them about the yes. importance of arts, you know, the importance of physical education, there's a reason why all of these things are, are in our, our school systems, in order to make our students more empathetic, leaders in the future to make them better people and and you know i talk a lot about the fact that i believe school is not just about preparing a kid for college and career it's about world peace it's about educating kids Mm -hmm. and 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 empowering them to be the kind of leaders that we need in a global society which is which needs to be a peaceful society and there's uh, a lot of opportunity in that where teachers can not only inspire, but can actually give their students real entrepreneurial tools of, uh, you know, how to build businesses that are actually going to generate things that I think will create peace, you know, whatever that might be. Um, mm-hmm. Those kids need to be empowered to, to think that way, and to think outside of the box. And our standardized testing and the curriculums that the teachers are complaining about uh, are not, in general, I'm speaking generally, there are yeah, plenty of yeah. exceptions, but in general, are not um, providing that opportunity for stu- teachers and st- students, but for teachers to push their students outside of the box. And that's where those students need to go. Yeah. They need to yeah. be pushed outside of that box. Yeah. If I hadn't been pushed outside of that box, I would not have had uh, any of the, the career that I've had. And, and that box, by the way, outside of that box includes the social skills, includes intergenerational uh, uh, personal skills. It includes Cultural competence and, and being able to talk to people that are different than you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the book, I break down. Uh, I say, I say, the keys to lifelong learning really come down to four pillars, the four pillars of education, which I believe are: inspire curiosity, provoke critical thinking, nurture talent, and foster communication. If we really recognize that everything we teach has to, in some way, build those four primary skill sets. Then we develop students that are confident, Mm. that are entrepreneurial, that uh, are willing to fail. Our current system, you know, our curriculum doesn't encourage failure. Failure is one of the most important lessons in life. And school is the safest place to do it because the only the only uh, consequence is a grade. Yeah, yeah. Failure in life has, has bigger consequences. <laughs> you know? But we have we have so much focus on writing so that we think we can't fail. You know, of course you can. You should. This is where you should fail. But our system just doesn't, you know, it doesn't foster that type of type of uh, teaching.
0: I'm laughing because my son's a senior in high school and our school system is amazing, our public school system, but it didn't fit his needs. So we were fortunate enough to send him to a private school that emphasized art cuz he's going to end up going to an, an art school. Yeah. And he's so good at everything but math and I'd say I don't really care about math. Just get through. Don't don't focus. He goes, "Mom, what is wrong with you? What kind of parent are you?" <laughs> like yeah. I don't I don't. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, basic, but I see all your other talents and I want you to focus on them. Now, that being said, his school does do that, but he was fortunate enough with covid the benefit he didn't have to take the sats especially Mm. for him going to an art school so he was able his last two years really focus on what he loves doing in his portfolio
1: yeah that's cool yeah so i mean i i I agree with what you basically told him you know my my dad used to say perfect is the enemy of good and he also used to say everybody has an idea it's all about execution you just got to get things done i mean in many ways you just got to get things done so that you can focus uh, on the things that, on your strengths. That's, that's part of the nurture talent aspect of those four yeah. pillars that I talked about is, is our education system to spend a lot of time focusing on overcoming weakness. But if we can identify and nurture talent, then we really empower our students to use their natural gifts to the mm. best of their ability. And if we do that, I mean, we create, we, we give every kid the best shot at success. How do they do that,
0: Robbie? How do they encourage that the teachers, if like their main thing is they want the kid to get an A in math or English and science, like how do we work that out?
1: So it's it's got to come from a higher level. It's got to come from the administrative level where we say we need to make sure that that our schools are not designed to be everything for everyone, but they have to have something for everyone. So that means we have to have a broad range of extracurricular mm. activities and opportunities to do that first part, inspire the curiosity. Um, the nurturing the talent we already talked about, the provoking critical thinking is what's happening in the classroom and what the teachers are doing. But a key to that also to, to both nurturing talent and, and provoking critical thinking is that we have to get away from the summative grading that is primarily, you know, what our education system mm-hmm. is based on. We have to get into more formative assessment rather than summative assessment. And one of the ways I explain this to my audiences is that we, uh, when the chef tastes the soup, he's making a formative assessment. When the customer tastes the soup, he's making a summative assessment. It's too late to fix the soup once we've gotten to the soup <laughs> oh I soup.
0: like that
1: yeah, yeah, so we've got to have more formative assessment built into how we educate our children so that we can fix the soup in the process and and give them every opportunity to uh, develop their strengths and 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 get what they need so that. That's from a top-down point of view, if we, if we have that type of structure and teachers will have a much greater opportunity. Mm. to do that. But we also then have to have professional development and teacher training on formative assessments because it's much more ambiguous. It's much more subjective like life. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you're doing this. Everyone has to book you everywhere. Every school (laughs) I know, I got to call them because this is the world I want the kids to live in, you know, and I know it's not tomorrow, but you can't just stop because it's not a quick fix. and I can just see it. I can just see it happening. And my biggest thing, Oh, it would drive me crazy. You just need to do it for the grade. You just need to do it so you can get to college. And I used to say, Oh my God, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, right. you know what I mean? Just get the grade to get you where you want to go. We know you don't want to do it. Well, and, to yeah, do it. and it's,
1: and, it, and it's almost, it's kind of egregious in some ways, going back to what we were talking about with uh, the millennials feel like feeling like they were sold Something that, you know, wasn't delivered.
0: Yeah, bag um, of goods. You yeah. know, our
1: whole K through 12 uh, structure is designed to get into college and or and or university, and our university system is designed to go from one degree to another degree to another degree. I, I say one of the things I say in the book is that the goal of every university should be to able to should be to graduate every child as quickly as possible. But education at the higher education level has become such a business that the business doesn't benefit by graduating the child. Instead, we need to keep them enrolled in school, keep putting them in debt further and further. And then eventually when they graduate, yeah, this kid's going to come out and say, I'm not working for a small amount of money. Look how much I invested in my my education. I want the salary that pays. But then the other side is the employer is going, well, that's great, but you, you don't know what you need to know in order to work for in that position in our company. And they're not, I mean, they're correct in most cases. So there's a real disconnect between the entire education system and the employment workforce yeah. in terms of what's needed. And that has to be corrected. And I think COVID in some ways has, has you know, shown a little bit of light on that uh, uh, because people have realized, okay, well, there are other ways to get an education. It's not yes. just about uh, I really
0: Yeah. That's a positive, by the way. And it's making me (laughs) get a little upset. I actually have a memory. It's a story. My son was in first grade and we have, like I said, an amazing school system and he had an IEP for the way he focused and processed and they tested him, and he was off the charts in some areas and not. And I remember sitting around a table and there was 12 people and the head counselor said to me, you know, your son is going to be great. He's going to thrive once he gets in college. But until then, school is going to be a struggle for him. I go, okay. They're like, yeah, he's going to have a rough time all through until he gets to college. I go, I hope you never say that again. I don't want you to repeat that, nor tell him that, because we have to figure out a different way. If you're telling me the way he thinks, he's going to struggle all through our school system, but he'll be great in college. I'm thinking, Holy! Well, you don't want to know what I said. Uh, yeah, that's not going <laughs> to happen. Can you imagine?
1: Yeah, I mean that's not that, that's sort of an ominous prediction, and that sounds, you know, it, learning first of all needs to be joyful, so it shouldn't be a struggle. Yes. You know, <laughs> that whole process, and and that's what we forget in the education system. I think we we forget that it 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 is about the journey, it's not about the destination, and that's why I'm a big proponent of the the of lifelong learning. I mean, we all talk about it, but I've lived it. And I continue yeah. to live it today. Yeah. Uh, lifelong learning isn't—it's not a program; it's not a structure; it's a mindset. And we have to teach that mindset. Again, it comes back to that uh, inspiring curiosity and nurturing mm. talent, uh, promoting critical thinking, and fostering communication. Those are the the four pillars, not only in my opinion of, edgy, of lifelong learning, but you know that's the skill. That, um allows you to pivot and allow the the combination of those things allow you to, to, to recognize opportunities when they're right in front of you they give you the confidence to explore those opportunities and hopefully capitalize and evaluate them
0: you're such a gift to not only the teachers the students because to hear your story it's everything that I want them to know about how you as a kid had a dream and you could visualize this is what you were going to do before it even happened which is important tapping into your strength and then taking that performance and love for music and 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 then it was gone but you you pivoted and then you pivoted again i think that's so important for a kiss. and like you said it's not it's not going to work out. Not everything is going to work out. I mean, it's going to go boom. And that doesn't mean your life is over. I mean, you're, who wouldn't want your story because you're, you're living it. And I think that's important for them to hear that from you.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and that's why also, you know, in addition to education leadership, I love to go into schools and talk to kids, you know, middle and high school kids and often do that. Oh, good. Whenever I'm in a place, because, because I think, you know, it's tough, it is hard, and it's scary to fail, and it's scary when things don't work out. And, and you know, I, I came from a broken home, actually, you know, and I, it's, it's uh, the family background, I didn't realize that, you know, how relevant it was until I started speaking so many years later about my educational journey. But, um, you know, when I have two older brothers that are seven and nine years older than I am. So when mm. I was 11 years old, when I got the guitar, they had left the college. And it was just I was just home with my parents, and that's mm. when my parents' uh, marriage started to fall apart. And Ooh. I was lucky that I dis- that I had an electric guitar and that I had the arts, uh, because otherwise I don't know where I would have turned while they were mm. too to consumed with their own problems. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, that's again, it's not even really about the school that's going to provide that. It it might have to come from the home. And and that's why parents are a very important part of their child's education journey. Um, I think I say in the book, you know, you can't outsource your child's education entirely to a school. Uh, You have to always be a part of that as well. And so, you know, it is part of what happened in the home. Um, you know, I grew up in a family. My two older brothers and my dad were in finance. They were all investment bankers on Wall Street. And um, my father's family were yeah. were political. They were the, the first prime ministers of India. They fought for India's independence. My great uncle was Jawaharlal al Nehru, who was the first prime minister of, of India. And then Indira Gandhi and Rajiv Gandhi, my cousins, were wow. the prime ministers. So, you know, for my dad did a big pivot coming to the United States, going into finance. And then I did a big pivot going into the arts. Um, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up a second. What did your family
0: think about that? Because here they are, finance, Wall Street. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to be a rock and roller.
1: Yeah, my dad hated it. And he loved it. You know, he hated it because it was completely different than what he understood. But I think he loved it because he was also the sort of the renegade in his family, too. And he okay. didn't go into politics. So I think he understood it, even though it was difficult. Uh, he supported me. Um, I, I had to prove it, though. You know, when I was uh, when I realized that college was not for me, I, I realized that in high school, I didn't want to go to college. I wasn't uh, college. You know, they say uh, college and career ready. For me, it was college or career ready. <laughs> I was career ready, but in my family, you go to college. You yeah, know? I get so, it. So I made a deal with my parents that I would at least give college a college try. And I did. And um, and it just didn't work for me. So I told my dad at some point, uh, you know, I did my part of the deal. I tried it and I'm telling you, it doesn't work for me. He said, OK, I want you to do one more thing for me before you drop out. OK, what's that? He said, I want you to write me a business plan. Nobody had ever asked me to do this before. And this was probably the single greatest lesson I have uh, ever been given was to go sit down Dad, and go visualize Dad. visualize my my future in a very detailed way and how I was going to do it. And, uh, that, and I earned his support that way because I spoke to him in his language at his request by giving him a business plan. And he looked at it and he understood it and said, OK, you know, th- you thought this through. This makes sense. I don't know if it's going to work, but let's give it a shot. And uh, and so he supported me
0: in that. I love that he did that.
1: Yeah.
0: way, I've got to do that for my son. I'm gonna. I didn't even think of that. i got to want a business plan for his journey. like well,
1: oh everybody should do it, and I, I I talk about it in the book. You know, we should have that in education, and it, does, it doesn't have to be a business plan. It can be an education plan. But we have to make it, and and, and it's always has to be flexible and malleable, and we mm-hmm. have to change it as as uh, and pivot as we need to. But It's good to have that skill of visualizing into the future. You know, when you're little, or I guess at any age, we have dreams. But at some point, those dreams need to become a little bit more concrete into goals. And those goals then need to be more concrete and become tasks in order to, to achieve those goals. So, you know, that's what a business plan ultimately is.
0: You know, it sounds so like obvious. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I've made so many business plans, but I've never said that to a kid. I mean, Ravi, that's awesome. I love that thinking it through, baby. All right, yeah. so Part here we education. are, 2022. What is your big mission? Like, what do you want to accomplish this year? They want to know what's the main thing you want to hit the education system with.
1: Well, specifically, the education system is very—it's very targeted, uh, teaching civil discourse because this is what we need in this country. This is what we need in much of the world. Uh, our politics, our media, and all sorts of things are are teaching us the opposite. And when you look in school board meetings and what's going on and the divide, it all comes from the fact that we can't talk to each other anymore. These are important issues. I'm not saying parents are not raising important issues. I'm not saying teachers aren't raising important issues. I'm not saying students aren't raising important issues. The problem is we've forgotten how to talk about important and sensitive issues. And so we just uh, argue about them. So that's one of the main things right now that I'm talking to my audiences about is the importance of not running away from sensitive issues, not running away mm-hmm. from current issues, but learning how to talk about it. One of the things I always say to my students is the worst lesson we teach kids is don't talk to strangers. We have to teach them how to talk to strangers. And we have to learn that as adults in many ways, too. We have to relearn that so that we can lead by example and, and, and teach by example. So specifically with that, but in the broader picture, one of the other things that I do is I serve as a cultural diplomat for the U.S. Department of State. And in that capacity, and this goes back to my music, I create these songwriting workshops around the world that bring together people from traditionally opposed cultures and religions. Mm. So I launched it in 2016 in Indonesia under the Obama administration. And we launched it in Indonesia uh, for two weeks. And I had Students from timor last day, from, from Indonesia, from Cambodia, from Philippines, from all over the region, Vietnam, all writing songs together for, for two weeks. And, and that translates to Buddhist uh, Catholics, Buddhist Christians, and Muslims all writing songs together in a room for, for two weeks. And nobody was aware of their differences. You know, I, yeah. I often yeah. say, I'd love to tell you they put their differences aside. That's not what happened. They just discovered that they really don't have any differences. Yeah. So I repeated the program uh, a year later in Russia. Uh, and then in Iraq with Iraqis and Kurds, and Lebanon with Lebanese and Syrians. And I just see it over and over that uh, this idea of world peace is truly possible because Mm -hmm. we all do Mm -hmm. want the same things regardless of what we are told, regardless of of the, the way that we're positioned against each other. And so in the in the greater picture, that's that's the end game for me. And, yeah. and, and that's true of education industry, too. I think we really need to be teaching with that end game in mind. Um, and so civil discourse is the next step in that process, yeah. um, you know, getting there. But in the end game, I think it's very important. And, and one of the closing things I say to my audience often is that world peace is possible with one caveat. World peace is possible if we make it profitable, because war is profitable. And I believe that's the main reason why we have it. So we're oh, educating our kids as entrepreneurs to think about not only how do we achieve peace, but oh, how do we make peace profitable? And then we'll have it.
0: Oh, I love that. I have to come see you speak in person. I would love yeah, to please do, do. I would love oh my Ravi. Oh, this came right at the best time for my listeners. I'm so happy you're putting this out in the world. It makes me just want to get up and hug you, but I can't. And (laughs) I'm so glad that you're using music. I I remember I was speaking at the world international conference for women in Thailand. And I, you know, I spent six months on it, making sure it was right. I was going to, I don't know how I got keynote. No one understood it. Everyone else had their doctor, but I was lucky enough to get it. Yeah. And I'm looking around the audience and I could see that they really eh, spoke some English, but very broken. And I also could see they were coming from backgrounds like, we're just trying to get water into our country, you know, totally different issues, you know, feed our babies. And 15 minutes into it, I said, screw it. You want to dance? My background is dance. I was a dance major. And they're like, okay, put on Megan Trainor. I love me. And we danced. And then we danced again. All my hard work out the window, how the brain works. But they're just trying to get through these people, you know, and bring it back to their, and so at the end, the whole four days, they would come up to me, Sandy, I love me, I live, well, I was thinking, I didn't want to be that person, like, I wanted to show, you know, that I did understand the body and the neuroscience, and it it was my ego, but really, that's what connected us.
1: You know, it's, you remind me of a story where, uh, I'm a partner in a boarding school for the poor in the south of India, and it's a remarkable school, it's called Shanti Bhavan, Netflix did a four-part documentary on the school, because it's just remarkable, my friend Abraham Started in 1997, our Mm -hmm. graduates these come these are the poorest kids in the world, and our graduates now work at Deloitte, Amazon, American Express, you know, many multinational uh, companies. They are we take them out of the villages at the age of four, and we pay for their education through their master's degree, and it's a just a remarkable, remarkable institution. So the first time I was there was back in 2010, and so I was meeting with these kids, and I was teaching a little bit about music and public speaking, and just learning about the school. Uh, in order to uh, help Abraham take it to the next level. And right after that, I went to Los Angeles. I I think I flew direct to Los Angeles in order to go work with some foster kids over there. And I was so excited from my trip in in India. I was telling the kids in Los Angeles about these new students that I had, these, these kids in India. And they were so curious that I just said, you know, do you guys want to do a Skype chat with the kids in India? I said, yeah, we'd love to. So I called the school in India, asked the same question. They said, yeah, we'd love to do it. So we set up a Skype chat. And I was just convinced, okay, they're not going to have anything to talk about, so let me let me script a 30-minute dialogue of questions and answers. Yeah, yeah. So I did that. Within 10 minutes, they were off my script completely. 90 minutes later, they were still talking. 90 minutes later. And when they ran out of things to talk about, they just started showing each other dance moves. <laughs> and the whole thing, the whole thing ended with the kids in India beatboxing, the girls in Los Angeles dancing.
0: Oh, I love. Oh, my God. It
1: oh. was... Just oh, I wish incredible. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And I showed the video actually to my to my audiences of that moment. And it was one of the most powerful moments that I've ever had mm. because I realized at that second that what I had done was just create a forum. The kids did it all by themselves. Yeah. I, I, I really didn't do much. So what I say to teachers, the modern, in my opinion, the modern day teacher is no longer the purveyor of knowledge. All the knowledge in the world is right here. Yeah. They are the facilitator of experiences. And that's all we have to do, just create the forum. And it's amazing how much kids will learn from each other in, mm. in you know that amount of time. And so I did a press conference right after that. And the only thing that I could think of at that time is could world peace, I think it's probably the first time I'd really thought about it, could world peace really be that simple? If we could do this with Palestinians and Israelis before mm. we teach them how to hate each other, mm. then maybe world peace is possible. And I remember awesome. saying that phrase. I was like, "Okay, that's that's got to be part of you know what I part of my mission now, you know, because yeah. I'm seeing it. I was seeing it then for the first time. So that was the um, inspiration for something I started many years later called Revenue United Schools, where mm. I do these programs with with a class in Chile and a class in the United States, a class in India, and a class in China. Oh. And you just realize that by putting these kids together and creating the forum online. They have the, the concept of peer-to-peer learning is, is exceeds what we could ever hope to do really in, in a classroom. And and I say that because that's part of lifelong learning, right? Peer-to-peer learning. They're not always, we're not all yeah. going to be in a classroom for the rest of our lives. So we have to know how to learn from each other. And it's these types of experiences to facilitate of those experiences that I think really prepare students on it. And, and the example I'm giving you is a very global Example. Yeah. And yeah. We need to be preparing our students to be global citizens. And in 2020, 2019, this was such a foreign concept mm. to most teachers. Now, every teacher knows how to do this thanks to COVID. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's a huge opportunity now to really take this idea and run with it on a much, much bigger level because teachers are now comfortable with the technology.
0: Wasn't Ravi incredible? Yes. The internet gods of Chile decided to end the interview just to. A tad bit early but I still want to put this out there because man is it worth sharing liking and rating it and hopefully we can get Robbie back on I know you're gonna say please do please do because what he's doing for the world whoo Keep going strong, man. Keep going strong. And please check out his website, raviunites.com. It's R-A-V-I-U-N-I-T-E-S.com. You can find more information about him and how to book him. You're gonna wanna book him, right? <laughs> Who wouldn't wanna see this guy? Ugh, incredible. Thanks so much for your support and the Let's Keep It Real gang. Toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.